Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to www.slack.com to learn more. Also, thanks to Warby Parker for sponsoring Motley Fool Answers. Get boutique quality, stylish eyewear and sunglasses at revolutionary prices. Try them for yourself by going to warbyparker.com fool to order your free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. And by the way, that's lowercase f-o-o-l. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. I wish our listeners could see the different, like, hands and expressions that you that you it's, it's give be- me it's, when I introduce it's you. It's better that they don't. Today was just a thumbs up. Yeah. Oh, that makes it sound but like I, other days are really bad. <laughs> other fingers. It's crazy. In this week's episode, we're bringing you part two in our Invest Like a Fool series by taking a closer look at the financial sector. What kind of companies are in the financial sector? What should you consider? And why should you even bother investing in financial stocks? We're also going to get some life lessons from bank robbers and give financial advice to dinks. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers, and today's question comes from Christian. He writes, My wife and I are known as Dinks. It stands for Dual Income, No Kids Household. And basically, Christian wants to know what kind of financial advice we would offer, by we, I mean you, senor bro, uh, (laughs) as far as how they should handle their finances differently from couples who have kids. So, the good thing about being a Dink is that you obviously have a lot more freedom, a lot more disposable income, and you can likely get by on a lot less. Uh, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which, by the way, calculates how much it costs to raise a kid. And we want to guess how much it costs to raise a kid just to age 17. All the money. It costs all the money. It's about $250,000. Oh. And that's not even including college. I should probably point out that that disgusted sigh just came from Gabby LaBera, <laughs> who will be coming in on the show later. Oh, hey, guys. <laughs> We're not alone. <laughs> So now having a few other home humans to feed and clothe and take care of is pretty good. And actually, some of the the best like early retirement stories I know of are from people who don't have kids, like uh, Billy and Acacia Kaderly, who I've talked about before. They retired back in 1991 at the ages of 38, and they live on surprisingly little income because they live in sort of cheaper areas of the world, all these exotic places. And you can actually learn their story at retireearlylifestyle.com. So some big difference in terms differences in terms of financial planning. One thing is, you may not need life insurance. You definitely need it if you have kids. If your spouse would be fine, if something happened to you, then maybe you don't need life insurance. If, however, one spouse really does rely on the income of another spouse, the higher earning spouse should get some sort of life insurance. Um, When we talked about financial planning priorities by decade, I mentioned that once you have kids, you really have to think about estate planning. It's still, however, important to consider if you're married, but you don't have kids. And estate planning really comes down to something like a will or a trust, what's going to happen to stuff when you pass away. The really important part, if you're married, is who can take care of your finances and your health care decisions if something were to happen to you, like you become incapacitated, so you need like the durable power of attorney and all that. And the living will, how much you want to be kept alive by, by mechanical means. So those are important still to have. Probably the big difference when it comes to people without kids is what to do about long-term care. With all that care. money? Oh, sorry, no. <laughs> Never mind. Is long-term care, because the number one provider of help to elderly couples is the family. And if, you, if you're not going to be able to rely on someone in the next generation, you have to think of either long-term care insurance or um, 
just having a lot of money set aside so that you can pay for the help if you need it. Uh, but otherwise, when it comes to like investing, really what determines your portfolio is your risk tolerance, your time horizon, things like that. And that's pretty much the same whether you have kids or not. It just means that you probably have fewer things to save for. Thanks to Slack for sponsoring today's episode. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working lives simpler and more productive. You've heard us talk about it on this show <laughs> maybe a couple times, so you know that we use it here at The Motley Fool to cut down on email and stay connected. It's easy and convenient for sharing files and plays really well with programs like Trello, Dropbox, and Google Drive. Also, it Simplifies sending animated cat gifts to your coworkers, which theoretically speaking, is key. It's key to productivity and collaboration. Let me tell you. <laughs> and it's mobile with apps for iOS and Android. Go to Slack.com to learn more. I gave money to Hank because Hank owns a bank and he can make it grow. Like I said, Gabby LaPera is here. And Hi, Gabby. She- Hi, Gabby. Hi, guys. And she hosts uh, the industry focus. What day does banking and financials happen? It's on Mondays. On Mondays. Every Monday, you can listen in as Gabby LaPera talks banking and financials, uh, does a deep dive for it's industry focus. Very exciting. It's probably the most exciting industry focus. You can totally tell all the other hosts that. Just email them at industryfocus@fool.com. Say Gabby's the best, Gabby's and that's the it. Best. <laughs> well, so funny story. A guy at work uh, slacked me this image of a Google image search, and he had typed in <laughs> "Motley Fool," and you know how then Google guesses what you want does to the autofill does the thing. autofill. So the options were the first. The, so he wrote "Motley Fool." The first result was answers Allison Southwick, I think, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then "Motley Fool answers Motley Fool Allison," and then "Motley Fool Gabby Lavera." <laughs> so we are. You're like the poster. People. Very popular <laughs> when it comes to Motley Fool Google image searches, which I'm just gonna leave. I'm just gonna leave that out there. Yeah, just leave it there and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> At first, I was like, "Oh, that's so cool," and then I was like, "Oh, wait, that means oh, okay, that's yeah. fine." Okay, uh, all right. So you're joining us here today to talk about the financial sector. Uh, what what is it? How to invest in it? Why to invest in it? All that good stuff. Following on the heels of Christine uh, a couple weeks, a few weeks ago. So yeah. thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So first, let's start off with how did you get started investing and working here at the Fool, and even being focused on this sector. Okay, so this is a long and winding story. Mm. So I hope you're ready for it. Um, we start in 2015 when I just finished my master's in biological anthropology. You might ask yourself. Hey, why does someone who has a degree in biological anthropology, why is she investing? It turns out that I needed money and a job. And (laughs) I knew someone who worked here. uh, He's actually been on some of the podcasts. His name is Michael Douglas. Um, We went to college together. I introduced him to his wife. Very nice story. I didn't want them to get married, but then they did. Um, Wait, why? Dish. Why didn't you want them to get married? Because I thought so. A Haley had a thing for bad boys, and oh, Michael Douglas is not a bad boy. I was like, it's never gonna last. But then it did last. And then they were like, you know what? I think we should get married. And they'd known each other for maybe like nine months or something. And I was like, this is a terrible idea. We're all still in college. You have no Mm -hmm. idea how much you're gonna change afterwards. Um, I don't think it'll last. (laughs) And 
then they got married and I had to apologize publicly at their wedding <laughs> I, as a bridesmaid. I was like, I'm sorry. I thought that you guys would fail. Good job well, on I keeping mean, on keeping well, on. Still there's time. still time, right? Still time. I mean, sure. You could be right. You were just maybe a little too early with your prediction. That, that's 100% possible. But anyway, so Michael's working at The Fool, and he knows that I have some experience in editing, and he's like, you should just apply and see what happens. And so I apply, and I get rejected. They're like, you Aww. don't know anything about finance. I was like, oh, you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are smart. Um, but I... I persisted. I was. I said, why don't you just hire me as an intern, and if you don't like me, you get rid of me. No harm, no foul. And they're like, wow, that does sound like a good idea. You have good ideas. And so they let me come <laughs> on as an intern. Let's hire you. <laughs> and part of the stipulation of me being uh, becoming an intern is that they wanted me to prove that I knew about investing, and I don't know who decided that I needed to learn about banks. Mm. I think there was like, if she can get through banks, then, you know, she's Probably That's like into hazing. it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I have no idea why they picked banks, but I learned all about banks and I started working here and I had access to all these really wonderful analysts and I learned a lot. And now I'm responsible for the financial sector, which is kind of the sad orphan stepchild in our in our fool.com um, writing because a lot of people in-house are very interested in editing articles about financials. But I think it's really interesting. They're like little ecosystems, which Going back, go. Go back to your degree. It's there beautiful. Right. <laughs> All right. So let's start off by talking about why someone needs to even have the financial sector in their portfolio. Why do you need this exposure? Um, I think that there's that classic answer of just diversification. It's a different industry and it responds to different pressures as opposed to like consumer goods or technology or healthcare or whatever it is. Um, the big thing for me is that financials is something that's never going to go away much like healthcare like it's something that people need they need financial services they need people to do what they're doing as opposed to something like say Fitbit you don't really need to buy a Fitbit you don't really need to buy a TV but you're always going to probably need someone to hold on to your money for you or to rent you a house or whatever it is unless there's a zombie apocalypse which of course is always a possibility, but then you're probably not getting healthcare either. So, <laughs> so how has the banking and financial sector done recently? Oh, As, great. Uh, okay, great. Yes. Tell me more. It's doing really well. Um, this is actually something that we talked about on our last show, but the big banks had a great quarter um, because of a few different things. One, um, the standard was set very low mm-hmm. <laughs> last year. It, things were terrible for banks. Uh, growth was slowing in China. They just announced the Brexit vote. Um, people, oh, the oil prices had crashed, and so banks just weren't doing very well. So this quarter, they're doing great. And then on top of that, uh, Trump got elected, and one of his big things is deregulation for big businesses. And a lot of people have pushed bank stocks up and other financial stocks up way more because they're like, this is great. They're going to pay less taxes. They're going to have to do less like due diligence stuff. Um, they'll spend less money on that. These stocks are probably going to do really well, which is why they're doing so well right now. Whether or not that actually happens, right. yeah. Yeah. we have to see. Right. <laughs> it's easy to just focus on the big, evil banks. Like I don't necessarily feel good about myself and the idea of investing in a big, evil bank. Mm. Um, whether or not it really is evil, I don't know. But that's just, I think people generally in America feel that banking and finance, I mean, they, they did not come out of the financial crisis unscathed. Right. No. And, um, but the financial sector is more than just the Goldman Sachs's of the world and the Bank of America's and the Wells Fargo's. Yes, absolutely. Um, there are a, a plethora 
of businesses within the financial sector. There's uh, real estate investment trusts, which are called REITs. Um, you probably know a lot about this. I'm gesturing towards Bro Camp over right. here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gesturing to my imaginary friend, Reedy. <laughs> um, because REITs have a lot of, uh, div- they, they have high dividends generally. Um, so I'm assuming that there's a lot of that in income investor and roll your retirement. Right. Yeah. So REITs, to avoid a certain amount of taxes, they have to pay out most of their income in the form of dividends. So they have higher yields. And historically, they've actually outperformed the S&P 500 with a little less volatility, which is why in our early retirement model portfolios, we have a small allocation to REITs. Wonderful. There's also uh, companies called BDCs, which are business development companies, um, also have very high yields, far more risky than REITs. Um, Insurance companies, alternative asset managers, and payment processors. So that's like your uh, Visa, MasterCard, Square, Companies like that, so we're we're much more varied than just big evil banks. There's also tiny little not so evil banks in there too. <laughs> right. Really, to get back to your point about the zombie apocalypse and all that, when you when you think about all those companies you just listed, that's the lifeblood of the economy. Yeah. It could not operate without those companies. So you can understand why, to a certain degree, people think of them as almost as a foundation of a portfolio. Mm-hmm. What I do think is interesting is that, obviously, in the last market crash we had back 2007 2009 they got hit the hardest yes. and some of those companies were considered you know the type of things that you you know the classic widow and orphan stocks like Lehman Brothers and and even GE which had kind of morphed into a financial company mm-hmm. so that, I think one of those lessons there is that there is a certain type of stock that's considered sort of quote unquote safe but you just never know you yeah. just never know even in so-called safe stocks you have to be diversified. Also, um, the stocks are really c- cyclical, right? Yes, that is 100%. Defi- can you go ahead and define cyclical for so me again? That means that they have um, periodic highs and lows, and it they're really dependent, not surprisingly, on how the economy is doing. Um, if the con- economy is doing really, really well, some financial companies really benefit from this. So, like banks do really well because when the economy is doing well, the Fed bumps up interest rates, which means that the banks can charge more for their loans and the banks make more money. Um, other financial companies actually make a lot of money when the economy is doing very poorly. Uh, so, there's some alternative asset managers that specialize in distressed debt. Um, so, those are companies that are basically going out of business and they're snapping up the company and then, like, either Selling it or making it better and like making it profitable. So those companies. So there's there's all sorts of companies depending on where you are in the cycle that they're either doing really well or really poorly. Just because the economy is doing really well or really poorly, which is kind of fascinating because not a lot of companies can say or not a lot of sectors can say that. So that makes it sound like it's something that you can time. We don't love timing the market here, but when yeah. you talk about how it's either up or down, then that makes me feel like well, I should wait till it's down before I buy, right? Um, yes, this is actually another discussion that we have pretty frequently on financials because um, on industry focused financials, because there are these kind of like big swooping market forces that generally don't move very fast, although the financial crisis is a great example of one that moved very quickly. Yeah. Um, if you believe a company is good, you should buy it. Like you should look at the fundamentals if you really think that it's it's got a good trajectory. Um, then, like Warren Buffett says, do you want to buy a great business at a fair price? And if you think that that's true, then that's a great time to buy, regardless of what the market's doing. Um, that being said, you know, 
there are you can't you can like look at it and be like, well, maybe this is just a little bit too rich for my blood right now, just because of outside market forces. I think it's being pumped up a little. If you think that it'll go down, that's a decision you can make. But really, what you're doing is the same thing you're doing for any other stock, looking for a great company. The sector you talked about being very varied and very different, yes. and when people talk about just like stocks and valuating <laughs> stocks, because <laughs> that's, that's the tone they use. That's what happens here at the pool all the time. Yeah, that was your David Gardner David impersonation. Gardner, he just jumps into the office in the morning. It's like stocks. <laughs> he throws flower petals around. He's like, it's the springtime for stocks. Um, People be like, oh, PE ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Or they, or they have this hard and fast way of looking at valuating a company. But this, this sector is probably super duper complicated. I feel like, yeah. I, I feel like a phrase "price to book" is floating around when I think of valuating <laughs> banks, and I don't know why. But is that a, like that's a ratio that yeah. exists? That's a thing. Yeah. That's a thing, that's right? A thing. But is that, so how it's they sound this sector because it's also so varied, um, and. Complex in and of itself, each each individual subsector industry. What go, it goes sector subsector genus phylum. <laughs> what like how is it? sector? Ask the ask the oh, underwater biologist right. here. <laughs> um, they, it's probably it's probably pretty hard. Should I be intimidated? I should. I feel intimidated. That's the bottom line. I feel intimidated about investing well, I mean, in these stocks. I think you're right because part of what happened in the last market crash. Was that the financials of a lot of these, or the like, the actual financial statements and all that was very hard to determine. A lot of the things that banks and other financial companies own, they're kind of signing different valuations, and it's a little hard to get a handle on what they're actually worth. Yeah, this is what I like to call touchy-feely accounting, mm. um, because especially for companies, say like a business development company, what they do is they give money to uh, to smaller private companies and help. Build them up. It's basically if you're buying a share in a BDC, it's your way of buying into private equity or venture capital without mm. you actually giving the money yourself to the company. But the problem is that the BDCs and banks or whatever sometimes they value things at how they feel they ought to be valued, and there's nothing really hard and fast on there. And these companies are private, so there's not like financial statements that the investor themselves can go and look at. So that that's definitely a danger that. You can end up with these things that you're not really 100% sure what the valuation is, or these really exotic asset classes like a CDO that's a collateralized debt obligation. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that get the blood going? (laughs) It's very exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What are some other risks that people need to consider when they're investing in? Financial stocks. So you talked about how REITs the the dividends can be really high. Are they like sustainably high? Is that something I have to worry about? Right. So that uh, depends a lot on the REIT. And here, uh, payout ratio isn't going to help you a lot because the payout ratio is always, you know, pretty high because it's that's the nature of the type of company. Um, And in general, like you would expect to see much higher dividend yields with a company like a REIT or a BDC. But sometimes they're really high, like really, really high, like double digit high. And it's when you start to see stuff like that that you should be like, is it because the company is doing really super duper well, or is it because there's a huge problem with the company <laughs> and their prices plummeted, and so their dividend yield has gone up? Um, if you see really really high dividend yields, that could be a red flag. But that being said, like even though there are 
this this is a very complicated industry. Um, it's also home to some of the most brilliant minds in investing, um, which means that there's a ton of material in the form of shareholder letters out there that are really, really good at educating you on um, A, how the industry works, and B, how investing works in general. So when I say brilliant minds, I'm talking people like Warren Buffett with Berkshire Hathaway, or Howard Marks with Oak Tree Capital, or Jamie Dimon with JP Morgan. Like, Jamie Dimon writes an excellent shareholder letter. There's not a lot. It's very blunt. Well, when you think about all these financial companies, what they ultimately do is invest, right? Mm-hmm. When you go to the bank and you want to take out a loan to start your business, they're going to look at you as an investor. Do I want to invest in this idea? Insurance companies, they take the premiums, and in the meantime, until they have to pay that money out, they're investing the float. That's how Berkshire Hathaway has so much money to invest. So. Whenever you can look at what these folks are saying in terms of how they invest, you're going to find some good lessons. Yeah, and the great thing is that a lot of these shareholder letters are very easily available. Like I know that the Berkshire ones, at least, are actually even bound up into books if you need like a physical copy. But most of these you can just find online. So, what would be a good industry to start with if I want to start digging into financial sector? Um, so, I would actually suggest that. If you're interested in the financial sector, I would start with banks, but I wouldn't start with the big banks because they can get confusing because there's something that, that they're a type of bank called a universal bank, which means that they do both investing and mm-hmm. lending. But if you start with a smaller bank, like a little regional bank, um, like your M&Ts or your BB&T type banks, I guess BB&T is not that small, um, New York Community Bank Corps, um, you can look at their um, balance sheets and income statements. And there's a ton of resources on how to read those. And if listeners want them, feel free to email me at industryfocusatfool.com. And I will send you some resources on how to evaluate bank sheets. And that's a really good way to just dip your toes in the water and, and start getting familiar with all of these ratios and things that are specific to the financial sector. And then what's a stock that you like? If okay. You want it? You don't have to necessarily. This does not have to be like Gabby's ironclad recommendation that this is the best <laughs> stock ever. But is there one that you're particularly charmed with lately? Yes. So stocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of an Oprah Winfrey than a David Gardner. <laughs> I don't know what it is. This person that I just did doesn't actually exist. Um, no. So there is a stock that I've been looking at recently, which is Visa. Um, which is a payment processor. I've heard of it. Yes, most, <laughs> most people have. They actually have the most uh, credit cards in circulation out of all the payment processors in America oh. right now, which is pretty cool. Um, and they're just a really interesting idea for me because they don't actually lend money, which I think a lot of people don't realize. They're not like a bank. They're literally just making money from you running your credit card. If merchants want to be on their network, they have to pay Visa. Um, and they get little transaction fees and all these other things. So they're not really exposed to the credit risk like the banks are. Um, they don't have to worry if you have a 500 credit score because presumably your bank wouldn't give you a credit card to begin with. Um, so they tend to be pretty insulated from stuff like that. And they make bank. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, <laughs> pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> and they, uh, they have a lot of opportunities to expand. Uh, the only thing that I'm kind of like, Worried about, I guess, is that Visa and MasterCard are subject to antitrust lawsuits pretty frequently. Like, think about it. Besides Visa and MasterCard, what else is there? There's Amex and Discover, but they're not nearly as universal as Visa and MasterCard. So it's just a thing to to think about. It's what I'm kind of chewing through right now. All right, great. Well, I think that's enough for now. 
Uh, you did make this much more interesting and exciting than I thought it would be going into it. So kudos for you. Uh, and if Gabby has piqued your interest for investing in financials, dear listener, you can listen to her Mondays on Industry Focus, Motley Fool Industry Focus, which is our sister brother podcast. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks to Warby Parker for sponsoring today's episode. Warby Parker makes high-quality, stylish, and affordable glasses that start at only $95, including prescription lenses. And it was bro's turn this week to try out their home try-on kit and their app. So how did it go? Well, so far I think it went very well. So I was looking for a new pair of prescription glasses. And it's very easy. You just go to the website. All kinds of styles, so from the sedate to the more stylish and funky. And most of the frames have choices of colors as well. So I started with frames, looking for frames I liked, and then played around with colors. You choose five, and they come to you in the mail. For me, I ordered mine on Friday. It came by Tuesday. So oh, it's bad, pretty yeah. nice. And I probably could have done another five, so <laughs> I might do that before I make this decision, because there are lots of choices. So I come in, and of course, I did the demonstration for the family. But there's also an app you can use. Take pictures of yourself in the five glasses, and the app turns it into a little 10-second video that you can share with your friends or post on your favorite social media network. There's actually a hashtag for it, hashtag Warby Home Try On, okay. which I did check it out. It's pretty funny to see all these pictures of my people trying on the glasses. My favorite is a guy doing it with a rat attached to his head. Ew. Yeah, no, it was pretty funny. Um, so I did it, and I sent it to you guys. What did you think? Well, so you voted. I voted for Hardy. Hardy, which is this one. I know you can't see this on the radio, but we might put this on Twitter. Do you still agree seeing it in person? Well, it's rough when you're wearing the headphones. Too, yeah, that's but true. Yeah, I know. I like it, and I like that it's an interesting shade of blue green. It's pretty. right. Which actually, I, I like. I'm a big fan of the blue glasses, and they had lots it of choices. It brings out your eyes. I did, but I did try out more sedate ones, just like regular silver. So I did a range. And then the circular kind of John Lennon ones, which did not work out so well. <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't buy those first. Um, so I thought it went very well. So uh, you have five days to return it, so I'll put it back in the mail today, and I'll make my final decision and get myself a new set of glasses. Aww. All right. Well, if you at home want to give Warby Parker a try, you can go to warbyparker.com slash fool. That's warbyparker.com slash lowercase f-o-o-l. Go on, take the money and run. When asked why he made a career out of robbing banks, Willie Sutton, the Babe Ruth of bank robbers, said, because that's where the money is. And so today we're going to talk about a few of our favorite bank robbers and life lessons that you can learn from them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do you want me to go first? Please do. All right, well, let's keep talking about Willie Sutton then, shall we? Let's do. All right. William Francis Sutton was born in 1901, and during his 40-year criminal career, he stole an estimated $2 million from mm. banks and jewelry stores. He had two nicknames, the actor and Slick Willie, because of course, uh, he uh, just because if you, that's that's gonna happen if you're a bank robber and your name's William, they're calling you Slick Willie. Um, but he also liked to often dress up in disguises when he robbed banks. So he dressed up once like a postal worker, another time as a police officer, a maintenance man, that kind of thing. He usually carried with him a pistol or a Thompson submachine gun. Wow, because he said. You can't rob a bank on charm and personality. That's my best <laughs> That's roaring nice. 20s accent. <laughs> he later told Reader's Digest, however, that gun, his guns were never loaded because somebody might get hurt. 
Wow. I know. If Yelp had existed back then, his bank robberies probably would have gotten five stars for service. He was described as a polite gentleman bandit who robbed scores of banks without firing a single shot. One victim said that witnessing one of his bank robberies was like being at the movies, except the usher had a gun. <laughs> so Sutton was also adept at breaking out of prison. In 1947, Sutton and other prisoners, dressed as prison guards, because, again, that's that's what he liked to do, uh, the men carried two ladders across the prison yard in, in the dark, and um, they put it up against the wall to basically... Do the old-timey jump-over-the-wall bit. So they, they were in the middle of doing this when the prison searchlights caught them. And because they were wearing prison guard uniforms, Sutton just yelled, It's okay! And nobody stopped them. They just <laughs> kept on going. All right, so, well, he'd been on the lam for five years when a young man named Arnold Schuster recognized him on the subway and alerted the police. He'd been living in a rooming house three and a half blocks from the Brooklyn police headquarters, and it made national front page news, and eventually, the guy who spotted him on the subway was made a national hero. Hutton Sutton, when he was caught, said he was amused to read after each bank job, no matter where in the country, that he was the mastermind. So here he was sitting in Brooklyn, and he said he never left the city except for a couple brief hauls to New Jersey, but every bank robbery in America was blamed on him. New York Daily News wrote that Sutton was the last of the great bank robbers who relied on brains and guile rather than strong-armed stuff to steal millions. However, in an ironic twist, the young man who recognized him on the train and led to his arrest was later murdered. Uh-oh. Likely a mafia hit. He was like shot down in the street. Sutton always claimed to be heartbroken over the murder. He said that Arnold Schuster's death haunted him and that throughout my career I had plotted and planned my jobs to make sure that I would not hurt anybody and now, after it was over and I was sitting in jail, a good-looking, promising young man had been killed because of me, the laughter of the gods. So, isn't that sad? That is sad. That is. And I'm glad to hear you didn't kill anyone. I actually never really knew anything about him, but I assumed because he's a bank robber back then, surely he must have killed somebody. Yeah. So there's a law named after Sutton, but it's not the kind of law you'd expect would be named after a bank robber. The witty rejoiner, again, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is, was the origin for Sutton's law, which says that when you're diagnosing something, one should first consider the obvious. And it can be applied to people, such as diagnosing ailments or debugging a computer, that kind of thing. There's also the Willie Sutton rule in business parlance, which means that one should focus on obvious high-yield activities instead of wasting time on less fruitful ones. Uh, funny thing is, though, in his memoir, Willie Sutton admitted that he never actually said the phrase. Really? And he thinks, yeah, he thinks a reporter just made it up. He says, why did I rob banks? Oh, wait, should I do it in my oldie-timey 20s please, voice? Oh, yes, please yes. do. See, I did that. Why did I rob banks? Because I enjoyed it. I loved it. I was more alive when I was inside a bank robbing it than any other time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot. <laughs> so that's Billy Sutton, my favorite bank robber. There you go. Very good. <laughs> All right, what do you guys have? Well, gather around, children, as I tell you the tale of the geezer bandit. So this is a guy who is responsible for 16 bank robber- robberies in California between 2009 and 2011. So a man who appears to be anywhere between the late 60s, early 80s, walks into a bank, very calm, quiet, hands over a note that says something like, Give me $50,000 or I will murder you. Really? I will <laughs> yes, murder you. Or I will murder you. Pulls out a gun. That's direct. With his left hand. He's left handed. Keeps it close in so only the teller can see it and gets the money and he walks away. So, went on for a couple of years. 
But the last holdup, a teller put one of those exploding die bombs in the bag, and the surveillance video of what happened afterwards led people to think that maybe he is actually not an elderly man, because you can see on the surveillance video, he's walking outside the bank, it explodes, he briefly tries to gather the cash that's scattered about, and then he takes off at a speed that is much faster (laughs) than anyone you would expect who is in his late 60s or early 80s. So, and that was his last gig. It hasn't happened since then. Ooh, a mystery. Um, a mystery. And there, there have been some other um, tales of people doing something like this. So there was an African-American man who had robbed some banks, gets caught. Turns out he was actually a white man wearing a costume. Uh, and then there was another person who used a very similar looking elderly man mask to try to get into the United States from another country, but it turns out he was a very young man. <laughs> so the theory is that the geezer bandit may not actually be a geezer. And interestingly, coincidentally, I actually looked up the etymology of the word geezer. It comes from, possibly, from the Scottish word for guys, or geyser, as in disguise. It used to be a term for people who are like mummers and actors and things like that. And it turns out in England, actually, geezer is like similar to bloke or dude. Like there's a, a quote from a soccer player calling one of the princes a relaxed geezer. So it, it has a different meaning in England. I guess we do tend to say old geezer yes. here. Like we don't we don't necessarily just say geezer without the old in front of it. I don't know. Yeah. But if the geezer bandit is an old guy and he's doing it because he did not save enough for retirement, <laughs> he's not alone. Because for example, in Japan, more and more elderly people are committing crimes to, quote, break into prison. There is a, a oh. headline from a Singapore newspaper, the Straits, the Straits Times, and it read, Rise in old jailbirds turns Japan prisons into retirement villages. They don't have enough money, so they're committing crimes to get into prison. Here in the United States, there have been stories of people who have committed bank robberies just to get in jail because they didn't have money for their health care. Yeah. So there have been a few examples of this. They go in, they hand in a little note that says, this is a bank robbery, give me a dollar. They get the dollar, and then they go sit down and wait for the police to show up. Because, wow. and then they go. The problem with this plan as a financial planning strategy, however, <laughs> is that more and more municipalities are starting to charge inmates for room, board, and health care. Some are even charging copays for the health care they receive. So if you were thinking that this is one way to get free room or health care, it may not work out. What you might have as a better strategy to get money from the government is try to find the geezer bandit because there's a $20,000 reward for him. So oh. go out and find him. My bank robbery story is a little bit unusual in that the entire bank was stolen. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so in China, they have this problem with counterfeits. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with that, like your counterfeit Gucci purse or whatever. This bank sets up in China and it steals Goldman Sachs' name and it sets up as Goldman Sachs. And since wow. they registered their name first before Goldman Sachs got around to it, there's this whole shenanigan going on in China where Goldman Sachs is trying to get its name back. And this other bank's just operating because it can, and people think that the, the the fake Goldman Sachs is the real Goldman Sachs, and so they're entrusting their money to the fake Goldman Sachs, and it's this whole rigmarole. And Goldman Sachs is still operating in China, so 
I don't really know what you can learn from that besides make sure you trademark early. <laughs> early and often. I think, I think people like the idea of stealing a bank, especially if it's Goldman Sachs. But now, is it like a legitimate bank? It's not like they're just yeah. taking people's money and running. It's like, we're a bank. We just we found this really great name that already has a lot of equity built into it. So we're yeah. just going to, yeah. That's exactly what it is. Although the fake banks are a thing in China. Like there, there are people that set up buildings and they operate as a real bank for like, a few weeks or a couple months or something, and then once they have enough deposits, they like close down and run. That's, wow, that's a thing that also happens in China. So, bottom line: don't invest in Chinese banks. They're pretty scary. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I will just have to say that I, when I was in China once, I actually accidentally left my wallet and passport like at the teller, walked out, left. And the security guard came running after me to give it back to me. So, thumbs up to that guy at that Chinese bank. <laughs> <laughs> Which was presumably a real one. Yes, yes. It was Goldman Sachs. No, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Gabby, that's the show. Thank you for joining us this week. We really appreciate you guys coming in and taking time to talk about your sectors. And I always learn a lot. So. Good. I'm thank glad. You for, thank you for joining us. It was fun. Uh, I also want to thank Linda, who sent a postcard from peak tulip season in the Netherlands, nice. and Shiraz and Rachel, who said Anyang from Seoul and Konnichiwa from Japan by sending a couple postcards. Thank wow. you, you guys. Ah, the show is edited politely by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. If you have time, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. Finally, that really, really bad, angry review about me is no longer like the most recent review, so that's really great. I'm excited about that. In addition to Gabby and I being adored on Google Image Search, we are also uh, uh, we also take some some criticism now and then. There are some great reviews on Industry Focus for for me. Some people really really dislike me, <laughs> but some people really really like me. So I figure that, neutral. that is can't please everyone. That's what, yeah. You have to assume at least a third of the people will just not like you. That's just the way it goes. Although I do have a message for those people, which is you don't have to listen to the show. Like you can skip it's over crazy to a it? different show if you want. You can just you can even not listen but to anything. You can just like go outside. That's true. I don't know. But you know what? If garden. you really enjoy being mad, go ahead and listen. Just. Don't complain to me because you had the choice <laughs> not to listen. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we thank you, our listeners, for t- making the choice to listen today. And hey, let's have a disclaimer because we talked about stocks. Uh, of course, The Motley Fool may have formal re- recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show today. Do your homework. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear here. Here, here. Here, here. I agree. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.